Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. On today's show, we want to know, what does Chicago sound like? In just a bit, we'll talk with Jill Hopkins. She's the host of the Morning Amp on WBEZ's sister station, Vocalo. She'll introduce us to some of the talented people around the city who are being highlighted in Vocalo's series, This Is What Chicago Sounds Like. We shine a spotlight on and pass the microphone to people who do things not just for Chicago, but because of Chicago. But first, rates of HIV diagnoses are falling in cities across the country. Cities like New York, Philadelphia, and right here in Chicago. Well, that's the good news. The bad news, cases of the virus are cropping up more and more in rural areas like West Virginia and other parts of Appalachia. Joining me to talk about this trend is Stephen Thrasher. He's an assistant professor at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. He has an op-ed in the New York Times this week on the topic to mark World AIDS Day. It's called HIV is Coming to Rural America. And Thrasher says rural America isn't ready. Stephen Thrasher, welcome to Reset. Thank you so much for having me. Why are cases of HIV falling in cities? Cities are being very proactive about the root causes of the virus. So they're they're addressing the virus and AIDS as well very directly with public health campaigns. But they're also – some cities are decriminalizing sex work. Uh, many of them are doing things around harm reduction and making health care available for people who inject uh, intravenous drugs. And they're also being very proactive with a, a drug called PrEP. Uh, it's a drug that you can take – that people who are at risk for HIV can take all the time uh, to prevent onward transmission. So cities are being very proactive about those things. And they have general infrastructures for healthcare uh, that have been existing for some time. So they're able to deal with these things in ways that rural America is not. Where are the country are we seeing an increase in new HIV diagnoses? Yeah. So cities rates are falling in lots of big cities. And there are these spikes that are happening in pockets of the country. Uh, for a long, for the past few years, we've had some sense that the Mississippi Delta was a place where there was high prevalence and there's been active work about that. But in rural counties all around the country, there are these outbreaks that are happening. The first one that we saw quite extensively was in Scott County, Indiana in 2014 and 2015. And that was when now Vice President Mike Pence was then the governor. And it was really newsworthy at the time because his public health people came to him and said, we need to do something about a needle exchange. The way that these uh, these outbreaks are happening is that in deindustrialized places, when economic hard times hit, uh, the, the unemployment employment and the issues around that really dovetail with the opioid crisis. And in many of these communities, legally, the drugs have been pumped in by corporations. Uh, There's one town in West Virginia that has a population of about 2,900 people where 20 million drugs have been sent over just a few years. So when deindustrialization happens and people lose their jobs, they're addicted to, they become addicted to legal uh, prescription drugs. And when they can't get those, they often turn to using syringes with fentanyl and with heroin. And so in places like Scott County, uh, the public health people in Indiana saw what was happening and knew something to be done about. And Pence famously said he needed to pray about it and took some weeks before that came to be. But the real issue, which my colleague Greg Gonzalez does research about this at Yale, is that the issue wasn't just that Pence took time to pray about it. It was also that Indiana had gotten rid of a lot of the testing mechanisms in the first place. And when that happened, when Scott County happened, the Centers for Disease Control 
found 220 counties throughout the United States where there were similar things ready to happen, that there were, these were counties where there wasn't much infrastructure and the elements were at play for another outbreak to happen. And now that's happening in rural West Virginia. So when you talk about testing, are, are you talking about community health facilities or, or what falls under that, that umbrella? There are various ways that testing happens. So there are testing clinics directly uh, for HIV, but also at the level when I was reporting the story for the New York Times, I found out that and, – and, and it was news to me because I lived in New York and now I live here in Chicago. And as a gay man, my doctors in various capacities will ask me to get tested or I'll proactively get tested. Uh, but in many of these places, the, the family doctor, community doctors never ask for people to be tested. They might not even know how to test or it just might not be part of their practice. And so uh, testing Testing is not happening at the level of the family doctor. There aren't campaigns to get people tested. There's not sort of public health drives to get tested in these places. And then when people become increasingly at risk because they might be using intravenous drugs or that they're having intimate relations with somebody who is using intravenous drugs, their doctor might not think to get them tested at that point. Another thing that's really difficult is that even in these places where there might be some kind of testing or uh, testing ability, people in rural America, I found from my conversation with people might feel the stigma might keep them from getting tested. And so here in a city like Chicago or New York or San Francisco, people might feel like they could go to a clinic run by an aid service organization and feel relatively anonymous. And whereas in rural America, the country doctor that you know, that you know, knows everyone, even if they're not going to tell anyone else's doctors, of course, are not allowed to by law, but the stigma of it might keep them from doing it. They don't, they don't want to think that that person might know it. And so that's another way that testing is lower in rural America than in cities. So Chicago is seeing its HIV rates fall. Do we know how things are looking in the rest of the state? Kind of what I've been seeing in my own research is that we just don't even have a handle on rural places. So the city of Chicago, will the the people who do the work here around HIV and AIDS will have a pretty good handle on knowing what's happening here. And in rural parts of this state and around the country – there aren't the infrastructures to know about that. My my understanding, having just landed in, in Illinois a few months ago and starting to get a, a sense of things here, is that we have decent infrastructure through our state for doing this. Um, but what I was just looking at in West Virginia and other parts of the country – there just isn't a count, so you don't even know what's happening until there's already a problem developing. Here in Chicago, if we found out that there were, that cases were rising in some way, there are lots of mechanisms to kind of deal with that and try to bring help and protection to communities around safe sex use, around injection drug use, or a number of things like that around, which has been a really big thing in the past few years. You just don't have that in other parts of the country. Well, Stephen, you said we are seeing a criminalization of HIV infection and Many states, as they're seeing a rise in transmissions, they're, they're taking a punitive approach rather than a public health-oriented approach. Talk about how that affects the epidemic. Sure. So I got interested in this story that I was writing for The Times about from a tip from an activist who was really concerned in her state about what was happening there. And one of the really disturbing things that that she identified for me and that I saw, her name is A. Tony Young, uh, was that 
there are, I think, 55 counties in West Virginia, and there were needle, uh, some kind of syringe exchange programs in 15 of them. But one of them has been closed in the past year, and another one was severely was severely downsized because of stigma and fear around it. And that's exactly the wrong thing that should be happening. There needs to not only be these kinds of programs throughout the state, particularly when you see that this is how the virus is moving. And the criminalization of having syringes itself keeps people from getting clean syringes. And not only is a harm to them, but is harm to their sexual partners and everyone in their networks. So that's one way uh, the criminalization affects things and is going in the wrong direction there. In my own research, I've been studying for the past six years now uh, a prosecution in Missouri, uh, a young man named Michael Johnson. It was known as the Tiger Mendingo case, and he was uh, prosecuted for exposing and transmitting HIV to other people, initially sentenced to 31 years in prison. Uh, in part because of our reporting, he was able to uh, have his sentence overturned because of prosecutorial misconduct, and he got out of prison in July, and I was there to meet him. But everything about that case, since I've been reporting it, criminalization doesn't help. It increases stigma. It doesn't decrease uh, it doesn't decrease transmission. Most people who uh, who are living with the virus and it, it's transmitting through them don't even know their status. And so criminalization doesn't help in any way. At the same time, what I've felt really disturbed about is that the county that I study, St. Charles County, spent, I don't know, spent a huge amount of money and time trying to prosecute this young man. Ostensibly, I think their reasoning was that they thought that would help lower rates of HIV. The prosecutor is now actually calling for the repeal of these laws. Um, but at the time, I think they thought that this would help lower transmission. And at the same time, they just closed two years ago their only STI clinic in the county. Uh, they were seeing about 1,000 patients a year, and they closed it down. And so that's also a really uh, good way to understand that criminalizing something doesn't help, that this, the money that that county was putting into criminalizing it wasn't helping. And at the same time, they're, they're closing their STI clinic. So now if there is an outbreak in a place like that, um, it's more likely to happen. And because people aren't getting tested, we're not going to know about it until it's moved quite a bit. So Stephen, historically, when we look at who was most affected by HIV, it was queer black men. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm curious, what role do you think that played in determining the initial public health response to the disease and how that's playing out today. All of this has something, a huge amount to do with race. And even from the beginning of the time the epidemic was being counted, it was disproportionately a black disease or black people were very disproportionately affected. That disparity has grown actually even after 1996. This is kind of where I think the change happens. 96, medication becomes available called ARVs that are highly effective. And for the people who get them, it's life-saving. And for the people around them who have sex with them, who are intimately involved with them, it is a game changer. And so the prevalence goes way down amongst white Americans. The real problem is that uh, white gay Americans, even white gay Americans living with HIV after they get the drugs, become very disinvested in AIDS politics. And so there's all this frenetic activity before 96. In my research, I actually see the rate of, if you look at it by race and not by sexuality, the rate of AIDS before 96 is lower than it is for African Americans today. When there was no medication, it was already it was lower, and all this political activity. And this is for African Americans now. This is not because African Americans engage in quote unquote riskier behavior. It's just that 
because we largely didn't get the drugs, the prevalence has actually gone up in our community. And so race has had a lot to do with it. And it's been interesting. My story for The Times was the most read Times story yesterday. And uh, which has not been the case about other AIDS things that I've written before, but it is really about the the crisis coming to rural white America. And I think that might actually uh, engender much more political will to to deal with the crisis. What do you think lawmakers can do to help counter rising HIV infection rates or to continue the work that we see in places like Chicago, where we're seeing those rates fall? Policymakers need to, uh, one, embrace uh, sex-positive education, including queer and trans-specific education. I'm very excited here in Illinois, when I when I knew I was going to be moving here, that we are going to be having LGBTQ education uh, in public schools. And that's really important to understand, to decrease stigma and to help young people not feel about their bodies and, and as they become uh, sexually active, to, to know how to protect themselves. So that's one thing they can do. At an emergency level, municipalities and states and the federal government really need to decriminalize drug use and the use of syringes. Because even if a locality creates some kind of syringe program, in Indiana, it was a, it was a felony to have a syringe. And, and many places in the country, it's a felony and it's illegal under federal law, I believe. Um, so undoing that. And then also decriminalizing um, sex work drug use, these things that make it really hard for people when times are tough. In deindustrializing places, um, people often are using injection drugs and they may often be engaging in sex work to survive. And when the the means of life, particularly kind of the, the hardest means of life, are criminalized, it makes it hard for people to get the care they have. Cities are really at the forefront of having comprehensive health approaches around this. And um, it's been great. New York and Philly just released their numbers in the past few weeks and have huge strides uh, through the use of this drug, Truvada. Um, but also, of course, cities are, we're not counting everybody and homelessness is a is a major factor in how people seroconvert. Um, so dealing with policies that keep people housed. And one of the reasons I study HIV and AIDS is because it's just a prism for understanding all the things that are going wrong in the society. So uh, lawmakers and policy people can address things that make life better for people in general, and that's going to decrease rates of HIV when people are healthy and able to have access to housing and medicine. That's Stephen Thrasher, assistant professor at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, Media, and Communications. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Chicago is known as a dynamic city. It's known for its diversity. Well, Vocalo, our sister station, showcases that diversity in a lot of ways. And one way is their ongoing series called This Is What Chicago Sounds Like. Logan Square. Logan Square. Rogers Park. Pilsen. From Pilsen Neighborhood. Bridgeport. Bridgeport. Humboldt Park. Jefferson Park. The series features Chicagoans who contribute their talents, be it art or business, to the culture of the city. And for this holiday season, they're profiling people who give back. Joining me now is Jill Hopkins. She's the host of The Morning Amp on Vocalo. She's going to tell us more about these profiles. Hey, Jill. Hello, Jen. How are you? I'm well. So for those who are new to Vocalo Radio, just remind people what the station is about, what programming is like. Sure. We are Chicago's urban alternative station. What that means is that uh, house music will always have a home with us, hip-hop, R&B, soul, uh, and a lot of local music. We are very Chicago-focused, and uh, I think that kind of feeds into all of our programming, Reclaimed Soul, 
uh, Rhythm Lab, and of course, The Morning Amp. Yeah. So this is what Chicago sounds like, the series. It's been going on for for a little while now, but just describe what you're trying to help people understand about the city through this series. We uh, started the series in 2016 uh, when we (laughs) came to the realization that Chicagoans are proud of Chicago like people aren't from other places. And so we wanted to uh, create a series where we shine a spotlight on and pass the microphone to people who do things uh, not just for Chicago, but because of Chicago. Uh, Everyone that we speak to, the city is, is a muse of theirs. So we're very lucky that uh, that we've met so many great people through this this series. Now, as I said, you're doing something a little different this time mm-hmm. around. You're focusing on people who give back. How did that selection process work? Uh, well, we all sat around in a room feeling terrible about ourselves because <laughs> we are nowhere near the people that these folks are. Uh, we get a lot of submissions at our, on our website at Vocalo.org. People can nominate themselves or somebody from their communities who are, are doing great things. And it's not just this topic. We have topic different topics all year round uh, for all walks of life. But it, it, it it's not a competition, and we hate that we don't get to choose everybody to feature. But we do uh, like to keep our eyes on people who may be flying under the radar with the work that they do. Although, if Mavis Staples wants to talk to us, that would be fine, too. We're always, always (laughs) available. Well, let's hear from one of your picks um, and hear more about their good works. This is Justin Cunningham. He's a native Chicagoan and a CPS alumni and co-founder of the nonprofit Social Works. Social Works, uh, a youth empowerment charity started by myself, Chance the Rapper, and Essen Smith. What we do is we advocate for positive development in the many forms that it comes in. We advocate for youth expression, for performance and literary arts. We advocate for destigmatization of mental health, enrichment programmings inside the school day. We want to make it so students and kids have some place to turn and have a, a, a force and an institution that they know will be rocking with them for years to come. Why did their work stand out for you? It's youth focused and, you know, vocals for the children. But, uh, you know, we get uh, we get to see in in action uh, a CPS, two CPS alumna, three CPS alumna uh, doing great work for kids in CPS. And I I spent a lot of my day talking to rappers. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is co-founded by Chance the Rapper. And there's something about this new generation of uh, hip hop artists in Chicago that they seem really focused on giving back to the neighborhoods that they came from and the schools that they went to. And I think that's really something special. Let's hear a little bit more from Justin. What I want to give back to the community is is, is kind of twofold. As a person, I want people to, to say, hey, that's, that's a good guy. <laughs> you know, uh, look and see these intrinsic qualities. And then when you talk about social works as the institution that it will become, I wanted to inspire the next group of, of young adults to be able to come up with these wild ideas, be able to create a, the plumbing for it and be able to walk into the mayor's office or CPS or, you know, the public library, all these institutions and say, hey, let's get this done. And those institutions be able to look back at those young dreamers and say, you know what? We'll give you you guys a chance. And you know why? Because that Chicago rapper and his friends, we gave them a chance. And look at all the positivity they created. 
That's Justin Cunningham. He is an alum of CPS and co-founder of the nonprofit Social Works, along with Chance the Rapper. It's a nonprofit focused on the youth. <laughs> this is Reset, and we're talking with Jill Hopkins, host of The Morning Amp, on our sister station, Vocalo. She's telling us about Vocalo's recent This Is What Chicago Sounds Like profiles. Their theme this round is people who give back. Uh, so, Jill, let's turn to another Chicagoan doing mm-hmm. good for the community. This is Rich Gartner. He's a former NFL athlete and community leader raised on the city's south side. I am Rich Gardner, co-founder of Maroon Village, and this is what Chicago sounds like. Maroon Village. The name comes from the Jamaican Maroons. It was popular in the 17th, 18th century. They created autonomous villages in the mountainous regions of Jamaica, in contrast to British and Spanish rule. So I was inspired by that to create a nonprofit geared towards student-athletes in that light. So what we do is promote resiliency among student-athletes using performance training and yoga. You know, I realize as a performance coach, you know, it's more than just the physical aspects when it comes to performance. There's psychological aspects there's other environmental aspects. So the city forced me to be creative in implementing program. And it also forced me to educate myself. I'm in school right now. So I realized that, man, I need more tools. Jill, what else can you tell us about Rich and his work? Rich helps kids get scholarships. And I think uh, that that goes a long way. Another thing that I think is really uh, admirable about this program is that he incorporates meditation and mindfulness into it in addition to physical fitness. And uh, I think that's really important to to teach kids how to maintain their minds while they're working out their bodies. Well, Rich also talks about a really specific way he'd like to give back to Chicago's athletes. At the end of the day, I would like to give Chicago the gift of uh, being authentic. And just want to remind everyone that they're not the logos that they wear. They're not their traumatic experiences. Oh, and the most important, they're not the stories that uh, the mainstream media narrates. So being authentic is speaking truth into the world. And Maroon Village encourages dialogue so our student-athletes can speak truth. And that speaking truth will help you know, liberate them and help them be resilient and become successful. So he's really challenging people to, to examine their identity. And that advice holds true for, for anybody, not just the young people. Oh, absolutely. And uh, notice how he says student athletes. Mm-hmm. He's not, uh, you know, preaching uh, all of this in place of an education. This is this is certainly something to be learned alongside. Well, you've got several more profiles coming out this week. Tell us a little bit more about what we can expect. Tomorrow, we're going to hear from Subia Rivers uh, from Healthy Hood. Uh, it's it's we're in the middle of what I like to call starch season, so we've got two <laughs> two folks helping us uh, get healthy. Uh, Jamal Cole will stop in on Thursday from my block, my hood, my city. They do great work in in all of the neighborhoods on the south and west sides. And Friday brings Katie Augustine from KT's Kids. Uh, that's an organization uh, that helps children in rehabilitation hospitals uh, experience joy and wonder in the summer and winters through uh, some great camps that they have going on. If people want to learn more about these people or the work they do, where can they find This Is What Chicago Sounds Like? You can go to Vocalo.org. You can not only listen to all of these uh, that we have this week, but going back uh, for the rest of the year, you can catch up on those. And you can nominate somebody or nominate yourself. Just because you're a selfless person doesn't mean you can't be also self-promotional. Why do you think this is important, Jill, to highlight the voices and the stories of people who are doing this kind of work in Chicago? 
because sometimes when you're doing this kind of work, you're not necessarily looking for attention, but uh, many hands make light work. So if we can call attention to the work that these folks are doing and maybe get people involved, the the work that they can do will be able to grow and expand and uh, get done what we all want to get done, which is make Chicago a better place. That's it for Reset. Keep in touch with the show via Twitter. We're at WBEZ Reset. I'm at Jay White Pub Radio. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again tomorrow. <laughs>